country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Hello and welcome to Talking Indonesia. My name is Gemma Purdy. The tragedy at Kanjuruhan Football Stadium on the 1st of October, which claimed the lives of 135 people, plus other high-profile scandals involving Indonesia's police force, Polri, have once more given rise to calls for reforms of the institution. But how did a police force born out of the Reformasi era so quickly become synonymous with scandal, violence and corruption? How have the police responded to the tragedy at Kanjuruhan? And could this present a tipping point, an opportunity for lasting structural change? Or is it simply too late and instead the answer lies in more radical reform of the criminal justice system as a whole? Indeed, what does a failing police force mean for democratic process and political competition in Indonesia? To answer these questions and so much more, my guest today is my Talking Indonesia co-host, Jackie Baker. Hello, Jackie. Thank you so much for joining us on Talking Indonesia as a fellow co-host this time. So great to have you here. Thanks very much, Gemma. Jackie, last podcast, Dave spoke with two guests about the tragedy at Kanjuruhan Stadium. We're going to talk about it again today with you and focus more on the role of the police, as this is really your wheelhouse. Police reform is an area that you have been researching for a long, long time. So before we get stuck into that, for those of us you know who need a refresh, perhaps you could just give us a little background what took place at the stadium that night and particularly what was the role of the police? So in short, Arima were playing that night on the 1st of October. They were playing to an entirely home stand. So quite a bit had gone into uh, managing the security for this particular match because of kind of a long history of football hooliganism. And so the stadium was full. In fact, it was over full by about 7,000 people with entirely Arima fans. And when Arima lost to Persevaya, the first loss in, you know, 23 years, the crowd was pretty shocked. And a number of young people ran onto the pitch, ostensibly to commiserate with the players who had, who had lost this great match. So I think it's important to note that Video footage shows that the fans weren't violent. They were unruly and they were foolish. But there is no suggestion that the fans running onto the pitch were violent. And in fact, they were, you know, there there are video footage of them hugging the players and so on. That's a bit different outside the stadium. There was a, it was quite unruly. It was violent. There was, you know, bottles being thrown and so forth. But within the stadium, it was pretty safe. However, you know, I guess people see a few fans running onto the pitch and then more and more come on. And at some point, there's, you know, a few thousand fans clearly running around the pitch. And it's in this context that we see the Indonesian police come out first with riot shields, also with crowd control dogs. They bring with them uh, other forces. So we've got the patrol forces, we've got the Brimob anti-riot forces, and we've also got local military forces, so the army from uh, Yonzipur, who were also located locally. And they're all on the pitch trying to subdue the fans. And we see quite a bit of 
argy-bargy going on at this point and largely initiated by the security apparatus. Police, in particular the TNI, going around hitting people with nunchucks, uh, kicking people. And this, this seems to arc up the crowd and so more people stream onto the pitch. Where it all went dreadfully wrong was a call by Bremob, who had been seconded from the East Java station to use tear glass on the pitch. In full violation of FIFA regulations, they use tear gas, which has subsequently been shown as expired, in two big bursts on the crowd. They start using it on the pitch, but slowly over time, they start to aim it towards the base of the stadium where fans were streaming onto the pitch. And then you start to see tear gas being aimed up into the stadium, which is affecting the 45,000-odd families and children that were there just for a good night out. And so at this point, you've got large numbers of people trapped in large clouds of tear gas and they storm the exits. I think what's important to underscore is just how fast this all happens. You know, I think the first tear gas happens just after 10, maybe 8 past 10 or something. The second round of tear gas happens at about 11 past 10. And by 10.15, you have got people rushing, storming the exits, being crushed in the stairwell. And effectively, this is where the the 135 people, including 40 children, die. Thank you. Extraordinary. Still unbelievable to think that it has happened in the way that you've described. There already have been investigations underway, right, Jackie? Immediately, you know, the authorities from the president down called for investigations, promised that these would be transparent and thorough. So tell us what has happened thus far. Have there been any charges laid, any meaningful processes of accountability that you have seen so far? Okay, so the president formed a fact-finding team, and this is sort of the main investigative team that has gotten attention. But it's important to note that there's probably about five investigations underway. These include investigations from state bodies, independent state bodies like the National Human Rights Commission, There's also an investigation by the Indonesian military into their force, the behaviour of their soldiers on the pitch. There are investigations from uh, civil society organisations who are doing tandem investigations. The main criminal investigation is by the East Java police, whose own forces were on the pitch that day. But the independent fact-finding team set up by the president, it was led by the Coordinating Political, Legal and Security Affairs Minister, Mahfoud MD you know, a major power broker within the administration. He had around 12 other members, some of them uh, ministers, but also civil society activists like Laude Sharif and academics. They uh, have found that tear gas was the primary driver of the tragedy and have called for both a criminal investigation and for uh, the Indonesian Football Association to take responsibility for uh, their failures and their negligence um, in running this match. On the criminal investigation side, we saw very quickly the announcement of six individuals as suspects by the East Java police. These individuals included three people from the the match side, so the football officials who had put the match on. This included, say, the head, for instance, of the organising committee and so forth. My attention is really on the three individuals from the police who have been charged as suspects. 
And these included the commander of one of the Bremob battalions who had purportedly given the officers the discretion to release the tear gas. And then there was also uh, the head of the patrol forces from the Malang police and the head of operational organisation issues in within the Malang police. These are pretty lowly individuals. Really, operational responsibility lay with the commander of the Malang police, the Kapolres, who has been forced to stand down, but is not fired from the police. He's just been put into another position that is much less prestigious. Some people call those positions, you know, non-job or, or being parked somewhere. He's not the only person to have been forced to resign. The head of the East Java police, the Kapolda, uh, Nico Afinta, was also put into a non-job position. But they're effectively kind of scurried away outside of, of public scrutiny. Uh, and it's unclear whether the East Java investigation is going to call upon the Capolda and the Capolres to give testimony or to let alone make them suspects. Does this pretty much equate with what you would have expected to happen, Jackie? Having followed these kinds of events for a long time, did you think that the police, given that they are basically investigating themselves, could be expected to produce any more than that? Yeah, I think um, the underlying takeaway is that impunity continues. At the same time, there are, you know, there are complexities, right? It's clear that the head of the Malang police force was very, very concerned about this match and had engaged in quite a lot of preparatory work to make sure the match was safe. That included trying to change the match to an afternoon match. He himself was not made aware that the stadium was so overcrowded until a week before the match with the tickets had already been sold effectively. So, you know, I do think that in these large, complex tragedies, understanding where criminal responsibility lies is very difficult. And so I, I kind of give some kudos to the investigating officers for that. At the same time, the responsibility would not have lain with those three individuals for the security of the match. It was So those three individuals are uh, in many ways, I guess, being scapegoated. In other cases where we have seen low-level police officers being subject to criminal investigation, the penalty that they have had to that they have received or the conviction has been very low. I was involved in a case uh, where police extrajudicially executed uh, a young man and the ultimate outcome for the officers who were involved in that person's execution was no jail time and they were held in detention at the police station in which they worked for a few months and in which they were able to be relatively free. So there's a bunch of different points of accountability here and not only do we have sort of low-level individuals being put up on charges, but I think there are questions to be asked about uh, what will be the kinds of penalty they'll be forced to face and will the police in this case continue to protect their own? Well, I want to get a little bit more into what needs to be done, the reforms that are obviously necessary within the force. Before we get on to that, I guess it might be really helpful, Jackie, if you tell our listeners a little bit about the police force itself, its organisational structure. You mentioned just in the context of this particular event, this soccer game and the security forces involved, you had a mixture of different elements. It included the police and their anti-riot forces, but also military involvement. So 
maybe can you tell us a little bit about how Indonesia's police force is structured and about its culture a little? This is a, this is a tough question. Um, I think in some ways uh, my research points to the police institution as effectively a franchise. Every level of the institution, every level of the command is expected to bring in money effectively. So there's a lot that can be told about the police institution if you think about it in terms of where its budget comes from, both official and unofficial. And so in this case, the Kapolres, their power over the station rests in their ability to keep that station financially afloat. And that will be both through securing a good budget, official state budget, um, but also in currying the kinds of off-budget revenues that are so central to the way the police works. There's a long history for this and I could talk about it for hours, but the police have long been um, underfunded such that we have these perversities wherein police have had to go and pursue off-budget funding. The police are now no longer underfunded. They're very well-funded. But the perversities continue, which tells you something about what the police are really there for, you know. And so in this case, the uh, Malang commander would have seen this event coming up. And that is a, a prime revenue raising opportunity to be paid for providing security to a large scale event. And to bring in that sort of money, you would also need to, you know, you would be getting some recompensation for the work that you're putting forward. But also you need to kind of spread it around. People call it patron clientelism, right? I don't know whether that's quite the way I would describe it, but that, but it's a good uh, simple term to think about it. But, you know, the commander would need to be drawing in and bringing in other groups within the police to also share in these kinds of the spoils of this big ticket event. So bringing in Bremob, anti-right police, who really had no business being on that pitch that day. And more importantly, bringing in the TNI, who under the new order had a lot of control over policing and reaped the fiscal rewards, we might say, the economic benefits of that. Uh, and how, who, through the rise of the police in the post-new order era, have been displaced from these sources of funding. And that displacement, uh, we have seen um, emerge in conflicts between police and military over this kind of idea of TNI, Polri, Bentrok. You would see these on the headlines, you know, the, the kind of the idea of these sort of gang fights occurring. So police have learnt over the period of the reform that you better invite the military into some of these big ticket events or there's going to be problems. And so this is also why we have a very common practice of seconding military army, local army forces into police business. That includes public order policing, but also criminal investigations. Military are brought into raids and so forth. I find it's absolutely startling that people don't make a bigger deal of this. We're seeing, you know, police and military joint teams raiding metro minis about ticketing and so forth. The military have no business in these domestic policing issues. But it's about these broader pacts between the police and the military over the spoils of security, and that's why they continue to be invited in. Jackie, given this event and other scandals involving the police recently, and we're going to talk a little bit more about some of those, but I just want to get a sense too of like how do Indonesians feel about their police force? 
And has it always been thus? You know, you talk about the separation of the military and the police with the reforms era beginning in 1998. What were the hopes Indonesians had for their police force? And, you know, what's the state of affairs now? Oh, that's a great question. Abri was kind of dismantled in 1999. And in that, uh, the police became, who were once part of the military, became a separate institution known as Polri and the TNI was also formed with the, the Navy, the Army and the Air Force. And when the police came to its independence, they were a very weak institution, willfully made weak by the internal politics of Abri, wherein the army kind of absorbed all of the resources, absorbed all the, the good human resources, often absorbed uh, police budgets. I have police telling me about uh, being asked to join FBI or CIA trainings and then watching as military officers put on police uniforms and went off to those trainings themselves, right? So it was that kind of level of predatory resources uh, within the institution, right? So the police came to power very, very weak, but also deeply disgruntled with what their share had been. And there was absolutely a sense that, well, we need to make up for this wrong that has been done to our institution. Now we are independent. We have control of, of the great economic prize that is domestic policing and domestic security, and we're going to leverage it for everything we can get. It also didn't help that the military remained unreformed in the sense that the military continue to have a domestic presence, right? Territorial command structure was never dismantled. So for the police looked at that and thought, well, we better get everything we can get because who knows when the military will be back. Look at our civilian uh, leadership. They're really not willing to engage in serious reform. So this also amplified and accelerated those dynamics and that sense of entitlement. What ordinary people wanted was a police that was going to provide protection, that was going to be a place for conflict mediation, and that was going to provide law enforcement. But what they got was a sort of new order security politics, but with police characteristics in brown, right, in the, in the brown uniforms. And I don't think that ordinary Indonesians go to the police for any of their law enforcement or legal needs. Most of them avoid the police. And in fact, if you ask yourself, well, what's keeping Indonesia such a peaceful and safe society that it largely is? Well, it's Indonesians and their traditional social structures, which retain quite a bit of, which, which maintain order in their societies. Police don't provide that for Indonesians. They don't provide security. They don't provide legal services. They don't provide criminal justice services. Ordinary Indonesians just try to dodge the police, keep their heads down and manage their safety and their criminal justice problems informally or through other village and uh, neighbourhood structures. Yeah, I mean, that then absolutely gels with what we often see, these, you know, surveys and polls being done where people are asked their opinions on various institutions and the police regularly come in pretty much last in terms of trustworthiness. So it's as bad as that, though, you're saying, that, that people, in fact, see them more as a threat than a, than a help. What's that fantastic saying? Go to the police about a lost chicken and lose a buffalo? Yes, you, you had that one up on Twitter, loved it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's the broad sentiment of ordinary people. And, and I think that sentiment has only hardened as they've seen the impunity and the wealth 
that has come to the police over the last 20 years, right? The, the militarization and the arrogance and their enormous role, their, their powerful role in brokering Indonesian politics. I don't think ordinary people see the police as anything but a kind of parasitic predatory actor on their political system. And now we have this case, but I want to also mention this other case, which many people may have already heard about involving a police general, Ferdi Sambal, which has been playing out like a soap opera on Indonesian TV and social media for the past few months. So this is a police general who is on trial for murdering his aide-de-camp, Yosua Hutabarat, back in July. Want to give us a little quick, you know, soap opera, like catch up. It, it's a serious thing, but it's um, also an extraordinary thing. So when I was there in July, I was actually at Marbas Polri uh, when this case broke, that uh, a two-star general, uh, Ferdi Sambo, who was the head of police internal affairs, that means the institution within the police designed to bring to, you know, to conduct ethical uh, investigations, to sanction and punish police who have broken uh, regulations. You know, he was found to have tortured and murdered a young officer in league with a number of other of his staff and his wife. His wife has put forward the allegation that the young junior officer sexually harassed her and 30 uh, suggested that he protected his wife and, and, it's in, and in the kind of scuffle Joshua was murdered. But the condition of the body and subsequent accounts have showed that it was a, a very uh, deliberate and tortured death and the motivations for that killing are still really unclear. 30 is now on trial, uh, which is quite remarkable given it's November and the scandal only broke in July. It's been quite a speedy investigation getting straight to trial. Given the depth of complicity from within the police to assist Ferdy around this death, it is surprising that they have gotten to trial so fast. You would have thought this was a pretty complicated investigation. Right. So you say surprising. Why do you think this has been expedited? I mean, much like the Kanjuruan investigations, I think, because Kanjuruan has also been put to the prosecutor. The prosecutor has knocked it back in the last day or two. But again, we're seeing investigations being conducted within the speed of a month, six weeks. It's really not long enough in order to unpack the systematic issues at the heart of this. So why are both of these cases, why are their criminal investigation files being submitted to the prosecutor so quickly? I would suggest the police want to get this you know, out the way, get it over and done with. I think they recognise the enormous danger of these criminal cases hanging over the police, particularly as we move into 2024 and the presidential elections, and they want it over and done with so they can move beyond. It very much helps the police to have a narrative wherein you know, we've got one or two bad eggs, right, and we've dispensed with them. So the police want to get it over and done with. What about this extraordinary meeting that happened a few weeks ago after the Kanjuruhan tragedy where Jokowi called all of the regional and district police chiefs to the state palace and he gave them a talking to? What did you make of that? I thought that was a very interesting performance from Jokowi. There was quite a lot of fanfare around this, quite a lot of media around it. There was this uh, idea that the police weren't allowed to drive up in their fancy vehicles to the palace. They had to either walk or take a bus. They weren't allowed to bring all of their fancy uh, uniform accompaniments. 
and they weren't allowed to bring their mobile phones. They all had notepads and pens. Yeah, they were, as Jacoby spoke, they were sort of diligently taking notes. But the substance of that speech was incredibly disappointing, frankly. The idea was that they were getting a telling off, a ticking off by the president. But his idea of what was going wrong within the police was that there had been some kind of personal or moral failure, right? It really taps in, I think, to his idea of like a mental revolution. I think he really continues to see Indonesia's democratic reform within that context. Firstly, he he framed the problem as that the public perception of the police had dropped And he repeatedly cited these polling numbers, the idea that the police had great approval ratings of 80% of the populace fallen down to, you know, 40 or 30%, right? I would doubt that they ever enjoyed those kinds of levels of support. But moving beyond that, that was his primary source of evidence for that there was a problem within the police. Bear in mind, this was like a week after the death of, you know, 135 people, including 40 children. He talked a lot about social envy and the idea that if you run around with your flashy watches and your nice shirts and your um, your posh vehicles, uh, you're going to incite social envy, particularly in a time in which there is economic crisis and the crisis of inflation that is destabilizing governments everywhere, right? The core issues about repression, about corruption. He framed within a set of terms that suggested that these were one-off issues. He called corruption pungli, which is like, you know, just a, a, a small amount of money that, you, that you'd give a traffic cop in order to wave past a, a ticket, for instance. Please ask officers to reduce this practice, he suggested, right? When, you know, the core issue of why the police was brought into the stadium that day, why they were involved at all, in clear violation of FIFA regulations, was because of this underlying off-budget economy, which drives the police institution. It's ridiculous to call it, you know, use this term pungli, right? Mm-mm. And it is, and it suggests that it's that it's only going on down there. Yeah. So is it really, you know, speaking to the to the chiefs and asking them to um, consider their own behaviours? Yeah, absolutely. And he also he also said stop acting in ways that are repressive. And that was all he had to say about the use of violence within the police. And then finally, he reminded the police that it was uh, their job to act in unison with the TNI. Uh, and that when the police and the TNI are solid and cooperative, we will have political stability. I think it's also important to underscore that it is the president that is in charge of the police right? The police answer, in terms of vertical accountability, the police answer to the president. In a comparative way, the AFP, for instance, the Australian Federal Police, answer to the Attorney General, right? That's how, that's the minister for the police. In a crisis of this depth, ministerial responsibility would come into play and there would be genuine and credible calls for the ministers to stand down. In this context, because the president is the president, there aren't calls for the minister to have responsibility. In fact, the police completely escape vertical responsibility. For example, the national police chief, no question that that perhaps some accountability may be levelled there. This has not been under discussion. Okay, so now you're getting us into some really thick, thorny stuff because I think the questions around these recent scandals within the police have always led to, well, how do we reform the police? What's gone wrong with reform? What do we need to do? Actually, there are bigger questions to be asked about these last few months, and that is, what do these scandals tell us about the power of the police, 
and the contestation over the police. So coming back to your question, were there questions about whether the, the national police chief should stand down? They were, most certainly they were. But those questions are being driven from other factions within the state that uh, want to play, put their faction of the police in power. So both scandals have hit the news, have hit the international news on the face of the actual scandal itself. So like, you know, Kanjurua and the stadium, uh, Ferdi Sambo, the murder of this junior. But within Indonesia, what has showed the depth of this scandal is that there have been numerous revelations that have come out around these two scandals. So for instance, around the Ferdi Sambo scandal, we found uh, that the Indonesian press was subject to numerous leaks that suggested that Ferdi Sambo was not just, you know, a wayward general who was incredibly brutal, but that he was, in fact, the head of a mafia that was deeply embedded with an online gambling syndicate. Ditto with Kanjuruan, pretty soon after the chief of the East Java police was replaced, we had a drug scandal of that police chief. Uh, where he was alleged to be involved in illegal drug racketeering and was taking narcotics himself. So both scandals have triggered a series of kind of other scandals that are playing out in Indonesia. And these scandals are unprecedented because they are accompanied by the leak of documents and data that suggest that the current leadership within the police needs to be replaced. I think we need to ask questions about why we're seeing these leaks. Uh, they're unprecedented. And to me, this suggests that there are internal tussles within the state over who's going to control the police, which faction will control the police. And there is most certainly an effort to bring down the faction currently aligned with the National Police Chief. He was appointed by Jokowi and is facing quite serious challenges of his leadership. So a Jokowi ally, are there any obvious challenges that you can see, Jackie, who may emerge out of this and what do they or who do they represent? I mean, the police are deeply factionalised and if you're an aspiring police officer, you might belong to two rival factions, right? So the police aren't polarised, if that makes sense. They're just uh, self-seeking. But certainly we have seen within the police there has long been a, a, a struggle for control, one coming from the faction allied to Jokowi and the other coming from the faction allied to former police general Budi Gunawan, who now heads up the national intelligence body. Budi Gunawan was once touted as a potential national police chief, but the, the sort of public outcry that came at the start of Jokowi's administration when he nominated Budi Gunawan was such that Budi Gunawan effectively retired from the police and was moved over to the intelligence body, the state intelligence body. But Budi Gunawan's control over the police, you know, continues and is deeply instituted. Budi Gunawan, under the police, was head of promotions and appointments. He was head of SDM, so, you know, human resources. So people who were promoted, who got their first uh, general star, you know, these are people who would have had to deal with Budi Gunawan for those positions. Uh, so Budi Gunawan has always had enormous power over the police and has used the police for his own political ambitions. 
I think that the subsequent scandals we have seen around these two crises are being driven by a faction that no longer wants the Jokowi faction to stay in, in power. Well, I mean, that brings us to, as you alluded to, the fact that Indonesia's already really in campaign mode for the 2024 general election and the presidential election. Of course, there will be a new president and there's many jockeying for that position. So one would imagine, as you have written, Jackie, in one of your comments recently on this topic, and I quote you, whoever controls the police controls the nature of political competition. So when you think about the next year and a half, how do you see it playing out with regards to the police and politics? So these political dynamics within the police have accelerated under Jokowi. And the police have always been political. I don't like to use the word the politicisation of the police. I think that masks the fact that the police are always and have always been political. But if we talk about the police being drawn into processes of forming political coalitions, I think we've seen that to a much more naked extent under the Jokowi administration. We've seen that through the use of criminalisation as a means by which the administration has neutered or disciplined its opponents and also force the hand of potential contenders to join their coalition, to bring them into the fold. So criminalisation has been a key way which the Jokowi administration has co-opted potential contenders. And so this is what I mean by reshaping the nature of political contestation. The police have been very willing allies of Jokowi and the Jokowi coalition in, in engaging in this. It's very important who controls the police because they can then direct the police's powers of criminalisation to protect potential political contenders. One really important way you can bring down a contender is corruption charges, right? In a mm. political landscape where all political parties are raising money through off-budget means, that is engaging in pretty systematic corruption that will be funneled back to the political parties. Everybody has a potential case against them. It's whose case gets picked up and investigated. And so I think that's the dynamics that we need to be aware of as we're moving forward to 2024. We can already see those dynamics with the KPK. That was a large part of why it was so important in 2019 to dismantle the KPK and eject its most professional and ethical investigators. Now the KPK um, is under effectively a former police general who also has a history of corruption and misconduct cases. And now the KPK is effectively a, I wouldn't say a toothless tiger, but a tiger that can be harnessed to this larger project of reshaping that landscape of political competition as we move towards 2024. And I guess to bring it back to where we started with the Kanjuruhan tragedy and the investigations, as you said, many, actually several of them ongoing parallel investigations, is there a glimmer of hope? Do you see anything positive eventuating from any of these? I mean, Komnas Ham only yesterday, I think, released its report or maybe the first part of its investigation. What kinds of findings did it have? And do you do you see this as an independent and positive kind of response that somehow might have teeth? I think the Kanjuruan tragedy could most certainly be used as the basis for organising around reforms that would bring about greater safety and law enforcement for ordinary Indonesians. But that takes, there are certainly a lot of opportunities to discuss 
core problems within the system, the regime of policing that Indonesia has today. I feel disappointed that certain issues aren't being picked up. For instance, the fact of the TNI being on the pitch that day. This is a great time to talk about whether we think the TNI should be seconded to domestic policing. Uh, it's not being picked up at all. It's also a great time. And it's time. not the only time they do these things, right, Jackie? The TNI is, they turn up for protests and all sorts of things. They're constantly being invited in by the police because of this underlying political economy of security. Uh, We could have a larger discussion about the political economy of security and the off-budget funding, but we're not having that discussion either. There has also been, and and NGOs have been, and Komnasham have been amazing at tracking this, threats to witnesses of Kanjuruan, people who have passed on video footage or provided witness testimony. There has been enormous threats that they have faced from the Malang police. And they have gone so far as to frighten uh, families from being part of uh, forensic and exhumation processes, which would prove whether tear gas was in fact the cause of their loved one's fatality. So we could talk more about that. And I think, I think for Indonesian civil society, I think discussing police reform is at a dead end, frankly. I don't think there is anything to be gained from talking about police reform. And I I want to be really clear that as critical as I am of Indonesian police, I don't see that these problems are necessarily, they have their own perversities in Indonesia, but they're all over the world, right? We are in a crisis of policing everywhere. Look at Black Lives Matter. Look at the US policing, right? And I think that opens up opportunities for us to learn across comparatively. But uh, so in the US discussion, There's this tagline which I find very attractive, which is the end of reform. Forget police reform, because reforms to the police that started under the Obama administration only enriched and enhanced the power of the police. Think about it. When you propose reform, then the police get extra budgets for body cameras or what have you, right? And so this is a gift in some ways to an institution that has acted in ways that need to be curtailed. So I think Thinking about the path ahead would be to think about external bodies that could be developed that would have an impact on the way the police work. So one really important body would be a coroner, a public coroner. In Indonesia, we have no way to establish, there's no public independent body that establishes cause of death. For victims of police torture and execution, You can imagine what it feels like to receive your death certificates from the police themselves, right, or from general hospitals where where doctors are very open and they've been open in the Kanjuruan case that they are too frightened to write what the cause of death is because they fear uh, getting harassed by the police. Establishing an independent means for extraordinary death right? Death that is outside of natural causes. That's a pretty fundamental part of the Western criminal justice system. That is something that Indonesia could do that would be incredibly powerful. In Indonesia, forensic labs are under the Indonesian police. The Indonesian police run hospitals. They run clinics. Criminals who have been harmed in the process of uh, being apprehended, they're taken to police hospitals and clinics. Kanjuruan victims were taken to police and military hospitals. How would that feel as a family to have the very people who caused the harm to your loved one being treated in these hospitals? You know, they're a very important way by which the police cover up their use of force. 
You mentioned the children lots of times, Jackie, and it's extraordinary and so difficult. But is that going to be maybe something that can be a tipping point? The fact that these children died in this horrific and totally preventable way. I see that the Indonesian government has 100% moved on from this and uh, don't want anything to do with it. I mean, Mahfoud MD himself has said uh, all the recommendations of the independent fact-finding team have been accepted and there's no nothing to look at here, right? I think the Indonesian government is very concerned with the upcoming G20 and the numerous forums that are happening uh, there. And so nobody wants to be talking about Kanjuruan at this point in time. And FIFA has also been deeply complicit coming out to Indonesia, playing football on the pitch, saying Indonesia will not be sanctioned for what happened in Kanjuruan. Nobody wants this to continue. I think our hope lies with the victims of Kanjuruan and with the people of Malang and their supporters to come out on the streets and to continue to push for justice. And I hope that those those protests lead to more intensive organising that would push for what might be broadly called as police reform, but which I think needs to be called as a wider criminal justice reform. Building a system of accountability for the Indonesian police, such as to dismantle brick by brick that impunity that they enjoy. Well, watch this space and watch Jackie's Twitter feed for more of these pearls of wisdom and great ideas. So we have to leave it there. Thank you so much, Jackie. Such a pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me today. Uh, If you're interested in all things policing in Indonesia, uh, keep an eye out for an upcoming journal article I have on dynamics in Indonesian police shooting. It'll be in the Journal of Contemporary Asia and it is co-authored with Rusan Nasruddin from the University of Indonesia. Awesome. Thanks very much, Gemma. That was Jackie Baker from Murdoch University, where she is a lecturer in Southeast Asian politics. Talking Indonesia will return on the 24th of November. Remember, you'll find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog. Subscribe via iTunes so you'll never miss an episode or find us via your favourite podcasting app. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Thanks for listening and bye for now.